Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Good morning. Thank you guys for braving the cold to come out today. It's a little chilly out there. According to my watch, it's 16 degrees. So we still are above the zero level, at least at this point. And I know you're saying, but what about the windshield? I don't know. That's just an excuse. Anywho. No, seriously, I'm glad you guys are here. Ladies, glad you're here as well. And those of you joining us from home, uh, I realized the roads were somewhat bad when I got out around 8 o'clock this morning. So uh, I'm glad you're joining us from home. And, and uh, it, listen, uh, we, we started a year of goodness last year. How many of you feel that this year is going to be a year of goodness? Good. All right. So and let, me, let me say, if you don't, then it won't. Okay? It is honestly oftentimes what we make it. If you go into something, a situation, a season of life, downcast, frustrated, and expecting the worst, guess what you're going to see? If you come into a season, a place, a time, a situation, expecting the best, guess what your mind is going to be tuned to? Seeing the blessings of God in spite of your circumstances. And so as we come into this year of goodness, uh, we're going to be unpacking what is goodness actually. And as I said, the word goodness and the fruit of the Spirit is only mentioned four times in the New Testament. It is only in Paul's letters, and it is not found anywhere else outside of the New Testament. The word Paul uses in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 for goodness, agathosune, is unique to the Bible and to the community of faith. And the richness of this word is that it is a moral goodness that is internal to the individual, that is only reflected through Christ in us. So this word specifically is rooted in God through Christ Jesus. The goodness of who God is through Christ to us, through the power of his Holy Spirit, emanating his goodness in us and through us. We cannot be agathosune without Christ. That doesn't mean you can't be a decent person or that you can't do good things there are a lot of non-believers who do a lot of great things. But you cannot truly be good without Christ. And the essence of your being good should flow your doing. That's why our subtitle for this series this, this January is Goodness, Two Sides of the Same Coin. We think oftentimes that Paul's letters contradict um, James's letter in the New Testament. 
Because James talks about faith without works is dead. But Paul talks about that, our, uh, that we are called righteous by our faith. It is not anything that we can do. And so we see these diametrically opposing individuals or forces within Scripture that oftentimes by many people is called contradiction in the Word. But if you actually read Paul's letters and you read the other epistles in the New Testament, you find they're not contradicting each other. They're talking about two sides of the same coin. You cannot truly be a believer in Christ and not do. That is an oxymoron. That is a contradiction in terms. You are, if you are a believer in Christ, out of who you are in Christ flows the goodness of God through you to other people. Question is, if you are a believer in Christ and no goodness is coming from you, what do we learn in John chapter 15? The vine, the branches, the father's the gardener. You remember last week's message. Any vine that is in, or any branch that is in the vine that is not producing fruit, what? What does God do with it? The gardener cuts it off because he's saying, you cannot be in me, Christ says, and not be producing something of substance and of worth. Okay? All right, so now I've laid the groundwork. Let's get into the message today. We're going to be looking specifically over the next two weeks, this week and next week, at Genesis chapter 1. You say, Brandon, you start in Genesis 1 every January. Yes, I do. But I guarantee you, you go back and you look at all the messages, it is not the same message. I'm not just, you know, recycling messages here. What I'm doing and what I try to do as I seek God's face in, in studying and preparing for these messages and these themes in this series is to look once again afresh and anew with, with clear eyes at the passage with this new perspective. So where can we see the goodness of God in Genesis 1? Next week, where can we see the goodness of creation in Genesis 1? And the last week of the month is where can we see the goodness of humankind or humanity in Genesis 1 and 2? That's what we're looking at. Today, we're looking at the goodness of God. There's a story told about an old man by the name of uh, John who loved God all of his life. I mean, he was one of those guys you talked to. He was positive. He was always loving. He never had a bad thing to say about anybody. One of his common phrases was, God is good. He wasn't sarcastic about it when he said it either. In every circumstance and in every situation, John would say, God is good. And when John got married, you know what he said? <laughs> I know, I feel the same way too. I got up, I looked outside. It was such a beautiful morning. I'm like, yes, God is good. I can't wait to step out in sub-zero temperatures. Actually, I'm going to give my wife kudos because I was going to go out and start the car. She'd already done it. Sarah Lee is good. <laughs> I don't know where she is right now. She's usually right in this region here, but uh, I love you, honey. <laughs> All right. 
When John lost his job, guess what he said? God is good. When, when John's father died, this is horrible, but it's true. You know what he said? Not because his dad was dead, but because he knew where his dad was, because his dad was a believer in Christ. When John's wallet got stolen, you know what he said? God is good. Well, you get the idea. No matter where John went, what John experienced in life, be it good or bad, his response is always, God is good. Because let's be honest, no matter the circumstance or situation in your life, God doesn't cease to be good just because bad things happen to you. Do you know that? Just because crap hits the fan in your life doesn't mean God has now become bad. Because the very essence of who God is is not only love, but goodness, those are two inseparable qualities of God's very nature. Do you know some time ago, John was diagnosed with cancer? And the disease began to spread so quickly throughout his body that the doctors, the nurses, all the procedures in the world could not keep up with the cancer. And even on his deathbed, do you know what John was saying? God is good. Charles was one of John's best friends, and uh, he went every day to visit with John while he was in the hospital. And every night before Charles left, John would tell him after their prayers together, you know, Charles, God is good. Finally, after weeks of this, Charles got frustrated, not with John, but the circumstances that John was going through and the fact that John still said God is good in spite of this terminal disease. And so Charles questioned John and said, listen, I know you're a man of faith just like me. I understand what's going on to a degree in your life. I, I can't understand it fully because I'm not in your situation and circumstance. But on the outside, as your best friend, watching you fade each and every week, how can you continue to say God is good when he's allowing you to continue to go through all of this mess? And you know what John said to him? John says, listen. Charles, we were not created for this type of a world that has fallen and broken and destined for degradation and death. And the only hope of escape from this cruel, punishing world is to know that there is a good God who loves us. And if we love him and surrendered our life to him, no matter our circumstances, when we die, do you know where we'll be? We won't be in this mess anymore. We won't be subject to disease and sickness and death. And we won't be subject to any of the sin of the world or the fallenness of the world. It will all truly be good in the end when we are face to face with him. And so you see, Charles, every time, every time I think of what's going on with me, I still think God is good. Because I know in the end, his goodness will reign supreme. Not only over my situation, but over me. As we get into 
what it means to understand God is good, we have to understand, as I mentioned a moment ago, that it's not about our circumstances. It's about who God is in his very nature. And so how can we see that in Genesis 1? Would you follow along with me today? Genesis 1, 1 through 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Two parts of the Trinity already mentioned. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and then he separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day and the darkness night, and evening passed and morning came the first day. Again, you've heard me say this over and over again, and the reason I say it is because I never, ever, ever want you to forget it. Where is the preeminent Christ before he became Jesus? Where is that third or the second person of the Trinity in this creation narrative? He is there in the word of God speaking forth creation. You cannot read Genesis 1 without also reading John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. Because the gospel of John, John tells us where Jesus was in the beginning of time before anything was created. And so does Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Because both of those men tell us that it's through Christ that everything came into being that is. Then God said, verse 6, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that's what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens, and he called the, uh, the space sky. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place. Isn't it funny, water always goes the path of least resistance in a world where there's gravity. And so it goes, and it pools in these things called seas and oceans. God called the dry ground land and the water seas, and God saw that it was what? You know, the Hebrew word there is tob, for good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation. Every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit, these seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that's what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. Do you see what he's talking about with kinds? You see, the interesting thing about God's creation is that it functions by a certain set of rules and laws. There's logic and rationale behind the way that God created everything. Genesis is not meant to tell us exactly 
how everything was created from a scientific perspective, even though there's some of that in there. It's more that God is the one who created everything. You see, the object of the creation narrative is not the what, but the who. God is the object of all of creation. And it is God's goodness that springs forth good things. And so when God is creating everything he is creating, he looks over and sees that it is good. And he creates them to function the way he ordained them to function, not the way they think they should function. A tree cannot say, I feel like a rock today. It cannot produce rocks. That's why he says these seed-bearing plants produce their own kinds. You say, wait a minute. I know today in, in the way we do farming and stuff, we can make hybrid types of things. Yes, you can, of the same types and kinds. We can take a horse and mate it with a mule or a donkey and create a mule, right? Yeah? What is the interesting thing when we do that? Mules can't reproduce, can they? But they are of the same kind because they are still in the same type of family of horse. That's what he's talking about when he says the same kind. Verse 14, then God said, let the lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons and days to uh, days and years. Do you notice that now we're getting... Wait a minute, let me finish this. Let these lights shine uh, in the sky shine down on the earth. And that's what happened. God made two great lights. Where did the light come from before the other lights? Did you catch that? Wait a minute, now the sun and the moon are coming into being? God said, let there be light. Where's the light coming from? <laughs> Good. What do we know about Revelations, Revelation chapter 21 and 22? In heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, guess what? There's no sun and there's no moon. So where does the light come from? comes from God. He is the light. John chapter one, we get this reflectiveness of this same idea when John is saying that Christ is the light. And you know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water, and every sort of bird, each producing Offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God said, or excuse me, God saw that it was good. And that's where we're stopping. We're not moving on for the rest of that because humankind holds a special place in God's creation and there's a whole message for that later on. Okay? What's the key point this morning? It's this. God is the measurement of all that is truly good. So I skipped over this verse to come back to it. Mark chapter 10. Jesus, and you've heard me quote this before, Jesus is, is approached by a man seeking eternal life. And in Mark chapter 10, this is how this goes. He says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him and he knelt down and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then instead of answering the question, do you know what Jesus does? which is characteristic of his teaching style, he asks another question. Because when you ask a question, sometimes the question has to be answered with another question to dig deeper. Why do you call me good, Jesus asks. Only God is truly good. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? In this world of corruption and death and sinfulness, there is only one true being who is truly good. And if you're calling me good, then are you associating me with the Father in heaven? I want to know if that's what you're getting at. Are you just giving me pleasantries to butter me up for something? Do you catch what's going on there? Why do you call me good? Do you associate me with the Father? Or do you want something? You trying to trip me up? What's going on here? Only the Father in heaven is good. He is the measure by which all things are measured, good or bad. When God is the standard, guess what happens to every other standard? It pales in comparison. We live in an age and a day in our culture where we love to compare, don't we? How many of you compare yourselves to other people? It's okay, this is a safe place. Guess what I do? I compare myself to other pastors, to other ministries, to all those things. I mean, that's specific to my realm of influence and vocation and calling, but the enemy knows how to get me to compare myself to others. Oh, you're not as good as so-and-so. You don't do the same things. You don't speak the same way. You don't have the same personality type. You don't, your sense of humor is really rude and crass, unlike somebody else's sense of humor, which is so much better. That's why people leave the church, Brandon. They don't like the way you talk or the length of your, and so I go into the comparison game. What would happen 
if we stopped comparing ourselves to each other and started comparing ourselves to the one true standard of goodness, where would we all, where would we all actually stand if we compared ourselves to God? <laughs> it would put everything in its proper place. But you know, if you were a true student of the word and you were a child of God, you know what? You see how much he loves you, how good he has been to humanity. If you're a student of the word, you can see how he has pursued us and what great lengths he has gone to pursue us. He is the standard and the measure of all that is good, and yet he continues to seek and search and save that which is lost that we would even say in our own humanness is not worthy of being saved. Do you read the newspaper? Do you, do, you, do you watch the news? And you hear some of the horrific stories of how some people treat other people? Thank goodness, keyword, we are not a good God. Because if we were God, we would have the right to condemn and strike everybody down. But in God's goodness, he refrains from that. Right? Have I lost you? Are we still together here? Okay. So what do we see about this good God that makes us perk up and begin to listen? The first point is this, God is good, and it's his goodness that creates that which is good. Let me assert this with confidence. God creates only that which is good. God does not create that which is bad or evil. Oh, Brandon. God creates everything. Not everything is good. There are some things that are bad and evil. Then where does evil come from? Hold that thought. Gilbert Bilizekian in his book Christianity 101 writes this. The question often is raised as to why would God create the universe in the first place? This is a philosophical question. So instead of being in theology for a moment, put on your philosophy hats and go there with me. Okay, will you do that? Yep. Let's try it. <clears throat> and here's how this looks. If only good can come from a good God, then everything God creates is good. Genesis 1. At the end of each day, he looks across everything he has made and he sees that it is good. It's complete. It's whole. It is what he desires for it to be then why would God need to create anything? If God is truly good, does God need anything? Because for God to need something means that there is something he is missing. You ever thought, think of that? Does God need anything? No. Does he need us? No. Then why did he create anything to begin with? If he doesn't need it, then why create it? So Bill Ezekiel goes on to write, <clears throat> the answer to this question 
can be found in the doctrine of the absolute goodness of God expressed in his loving and giving nature. Listen to what he says. Because God is love, he is also a giver. Love yearns to give. In fact, true love cannot stop giving. It gives compulsively and, and, and irrepressibly. When God does the giving, he does it lavishly on the scale of the universe. This is what baffles modern day scientists. And why do I say modern day? Because many of our scientists from the 16 and 1700s before the Great Awakening actually knew that God was the creator. And so it didn't boggle the mind, the vastness of the universe, at least that which they could understand because they knew that as vast and as big as the universe seems to be, there is a bigger and greater God outside of that. But it baffles scientists in the modern era because in the great awakening of the enlightenment period, not the great awakening, the enlightenment period of the 1700s, we as a people across the globe decided we are so much better than any other generation that has ever existed. So we must be the sole focus of everything. Thus, the modern era is ushered in. And science is overtaken in this enlightenment period by a thing we call atheism. By the 1800s, you get philosophers like Nietzsche who are really digging into this modern era enlightenment. We are now so enlightened as creatures of this world that we know better than this so-called fictional God. French Revolution happens in the 1700s too during that same enlightenment period. And guess what they did to all of their leaders? The guillotine. And even Robespierre, who started the whole thing, guess what they did to him? Once they killed the king and all the royalty, they did the same thing to him. They went into all of the cathedrals, took the priests and clergy, they killed them off too. Why? Because we don't need any of that religion stuff anymore. Has anything really changed? We may not use the guillotine anymore, but we have our ways of beheading people today, don't we? When God, when God and his goodness is taken out of the picture, guess what results? So in God's goodness, he creates. He creates on the scale of the universe, thus again baffling the mind. I, 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 you guys, I don't nerd, you, you may not nerd out on science like I do. And I am by no stretch, I, I am not even a novice when it comes to reading. I read sometimes physics books and try to understand how God created everything. It's, I nerd out on some of this stuff occasionally, all right? Do you, how many of you have heard of the Hubble telescope? Okay, you know it's pretty much done, right? It's old, it's antiquated. There's a new telescope they launched 
called the James Webb Telescope. Do you know how much further it can see beyond what the Hubble could? And do you know what it can... So do you know what's happening now? There's some of the theories about the Big Bang and other types of things. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't measuring up to our equations that we had. It's really messing them up. Something is wrong. I mean, what we thought to be true, and at least on the whiteboards and blackboards of, of scientists throughout the course of 200 years, we had this figured out. And the James Webb Telescope is saying, yeah, you're wrong. I love to think that God must be up there or around here looking at our minuscule attempts to figure out his good creation and say, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> oh, you think you came from apes? <laughs> okay. I mean, genetically, you're pretty close, but no, you're a different kind than that. Oh, oh you, you thought... The universe was 16 plus billion years old. I mean, a good guess. I mean, good for you. <laughs> I, I know how old it is because I created it. I'm just saying. When we have already figured out, when we think we have figured out God or figured out his creation, is <laughs> when we become the most stupidest people in the world. When God creates suns and stars, he does not gingerly scatter a few here and there. He spawns billions upon billions of them, enough to form a whole galaxy of light year magnitude, galaxies of light year magnitude across. And do you know what a light year is? A light year is going at the speed of light for a year. I'm going to get the exact one wrong. It's about 183,000 miles per second. Somebody's going to correct me and say, after church, they're going to come down. Actually, it's 100. And it's just, I'm just kidding. You're not a nerd like me. But here's the thing. Somebody's going to come up to me and tell me that. But let's just say 183,000 miles per second. How fast is that? It's pretty darn fast. For light from the sun, our sun to reach earth is about eight to nine minutes. It's 96 million miles from the earth to the sun. That's a, that's a pretty decent amount of time. So now when you're talking light years, if you're going 186, or 180, is it 86 or 83? So I was 3,000 off. 186,000 miles per second. How many seconds in a day? Andromeda and all of these other galaxies out there, how long would it take us to get there? Well, going at the speed of light, you would still never make it in your lifetime to some of these places. It's crazy to think. So when God creates, he doesn't just, I think this little small space is good enough. 
Do you know why God creates the vast expanses of the universe with all these billions of galaxies and trillions of stars? And Do you know why he does that? Because he can, but because he's good. And because his very nature is good and his very nature is love, he can't not create. Because that's what love does and that's what goodness does. Good cannot be good unless it does. And love cannot be love unless it creates. And so out of the very nature of who he is, we have the vast expanses of the universe that boggles the minds of some of the smartest men and women the world has ever known. And their intellect pales in comparison to an infinite knowledge of an almighty creator. And so God creates because God is good, but God also creates all of that which is inherently good. So let's look at this. Second point, all that emanates from God is inherently good because God is good. Remember I said, hold that thought. God creates everything, then where did evil come from? God only creates that which is good because to do otherwise would be contrary to his very nature. For God to create evil would mean that God is not good. Okay? That seems logical, right? So what do we do with this paradox that we wrestle with? God is the creator of everything, but God doesn't create evil, so then God is not the creator of everything. Right? Unless you factor in what it means to truly be a God of love and a God of goodness. How many of you have heard me say over and over, because God is love, God does not force his love on us. Because he would not be love if his love was forced, would it? Would he? Do you understand what I'm getting at? I mean, just stretch with me a little bit. God does not create that which is bad or evil. But God is good, and all that God creates is good. But God is also love, and love creates opportunities, but never forces someone to choose him. This is what we call the doctrine of free will. And so we are not in the camp that everything has been preordained to do or happen the way it happens. Because in God's good creation, as a loving God, he creates opportunity and knows the risks exist in the free will of his human creation to go against what he has created as good. You following me? So God did not create evil, but he... If you want to give him credit for evil, you could say he created the potential for evil to exist. But God couldn't create any other type of creation and it be good without also giving the freedom of choice to his creatures to receive his love freely or to reject it. So I get this question a lot from multiple people and have for 25 years. Why did God... God creates a good creation and he puts a tree in the garden that he says, don't eat it. Why would he put that tree there to begin with? 
Was the tree bad? So let's look at the essence of the tree. Everything God creates is good. In the perfectness of the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, there is no sin, there is no death. It does not exist in God's good creation yet. The potential exists. Is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil bad? No. Because everything God creates is inherently good. The knowledge of good and evil is not that which is bad. It's doing that which God says not to do that is bad. Do you catch the difference? So then why would God put it there? Because to not put that option there is to not allow an option at all. And love creates options and opportunities. It would not be good in my marriage if I tried to force Sarah Lee to love me, nor she me. Would it? What kind of a relationship is it where you feel forced to stay for fear of your own life? Or for fear of any, is, 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 is love and fear, are, are, are they symbiotic? Do they work together? No, actually we read in scripture, perfect love does what to fear? Okay, so if God is love, then what does God do? He casts out all fear. Now, my love for God and God's love for me, when fear enters that, if he is forcing me to love him, guess what's gonna happen? Fear's gonna enter the picture. God does not want us to serve him or follow him out of fear, not in the sense of what we're talking about right now, but out of love. This is the difference in somebody coming to Christ because they're afraid of going to hell versus coming to Christ because they love him more than anyone else. Do you catch that? I grew up in an era and a time period in the South where it was hellfire and brimstone, and Literally, when I say this, the evangelist tried to scare the hell out of you. Oh, I could get people to flood the altars by telling you the horrors and the terrors of hell. But how much more compelling is the love of God and the goodness of God? God doesn't want us to follow him because we're scared of him. God wants us to follow him because we love him. And God showed his love for us, and yet that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, as Paul says, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, the goodness of God. We can only be good because of him. So all that God creates is good, and he continues to create opportunities of good for us to come to know his goodness. And the only way to do that is through Christ Jesus, the best offering of good that he could give us. Lastly, God's good is best. You've heard me say this before, because I had to go through this before. We live in a day and age where we rank things as good, better, or best. Right? But in the beginning, 
when we read the creation narrative of God, he looked over everything and says, meh, it's good. Is that how we read that? And if we're reading it from an American perspective, good, better, best, good is the lowest on the rank of goodness, right? Meh, it's good enough. That's, is, that how God, is that how we see God creating everything and at the end of each day going, I could have done better. Because <laughs> so, I think sometimes we think that God's like, yeah, God, well, have you ever said, God, you made a mistake in creating me. God, you, you must have messed up somewhere along the way. No, God creates only that which is good. He knits you together in your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. You need to know that full well. As a kid, I was told God doesn't create junk. He still doesn't. Everything God creates is good, is an inherently good but that goodness can be marred by just a slight perversion or deviation. The enemy is like a lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour, and he does a pretty darn good job of that. He does a pretty good job at distorting everything that God calls good. You see, what the enemy often does is he takes what God calls good, and he says, well, I can make it better. You ever get that temptation? Oh, you don't want to follow that churchy stuff, that fictional Bible, or that so-called God. You live your life for you. Take life by the horns and ride it out. Don't let it tame you. You tame life because you, you are the one that's most important. And so we believe the lie that to have something better than God's good will give us more satisfaction always ends up leaving us empty and more empty and more empty. Why do you think addiction is so high? Because we're, we, are, we are following that which we have believed is going to give us something better than what we have. Or what about, what about this? That person that I'm attracted to, though I know they're not good for me, they make me feel good. Or maybe if I get that next promotion or, or that next income raise, or I'm gonna pursue and pursue and pursue and neglect the most important thing of my life, or at least that which should be the most important thing in my life. Why, why, can I ask a question? Why do we seek that which is beyond what God has called good? Again, that's your favorite answer. Who says that? Said oh, you said it. It came from the same, because we can. And that, there's, there is truth in that. We seek it because we can. God has given us the freedom to seek whatever we want. Paul even talks about this in his letters. You're free to do whatever you want, but not everything is beneficial for you. 
Not everything is good for you. Can, you have the freedom, even as a believer in Christ, to do whatever the heck you please. But it's not all good. So why would you want to do something less than God's good? If God's good is truly that which is the most fulfilling. It's not the easiest. But how many of you would agree with this statement? Not everything that is easy is good. Sometimes the, the, the most good that can ever come is something that I have to work the hardest at. Yeah? I got one back there. I've never known anything of worth in my life to come easy. Because everything in this world is counter to God's kingdom. And in order to be a part of God's kingdom, I have to do that which is difficult. But the reality is, God hasn't left me alone to my own devices. He has sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish. That's good news. But have everlasting life. That's even greater news. Because if I had eternal life and I had to live in this fallen world, that would be hell. Because this is not what God has desired for us. The way to him is narrow and not many choose it because it's hard. But if God is good and God is love, he has prepared a way for us through this wilderness we call the world. And he says, it, it is gonna be hard, but I promise you, it's good. That narrow way, you're gonna get bumps and bruises, you're gonna scrape your knees because you're gonna fall a time or two. It's gonna be treacherous. There are gonna be chasms you think that you'll never get through. There are precipices on these mountains where the view is beautiful, but it is gonna be a nightmare to get there but I'll be with you, okay? We're gonna get through this. There are pitfalls. There, there are places that look solid and when you step on them, it's gonna snag you up, but it's gonna be okay. You keep following my path. We're gonna get there because it's good. And in order to get to where I desire for you to be with me, we have to come out of all of this muck but I promise you there's an end to all of this muck. And it is good. And the journey can be good because I'm with you. Stick with me. How do we get back to a good creation? How can we hear the voice of God declaring today that it is very good? Do you know that God through chapter Chapter 1, through verse 25 of, of Genesis, 1 Gen, or Genesis chapter 1, there are six occurrences of God saying that it is good. Six occurrences. But then he comes to, as we'll find out in two weeks, there is a time where he says it is very good. That is the seventh occurrence. Do you know why he puts a very on the front of that good? Because if God's good is best, then is there anything better than God's good? I would say in on one occasion, when God said it's very good. 
because he had gotten done with everything in creation. He put the capstone on the creation narrative by creating humans in his own image. And when he looked back over everything he created, that seventh time, number seven in the Hebrew, is significant. Do you know what number seven signifies? Completeness, wholeness, and perfection. So after seven or after six goods, God puts the capstone on. He says, okay, now, oh, it's very good. And then on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests because, man, he was so tired. Can God get tired? Does God need sleep? Does he get exhausted? I think he gets exasperated, but I don't think he ever gets exhausted. I think he gets frustrated, but he never gets tired. So why did he need to rest? He didn't need to do anything. He rested to show us what he desires of us. Everything he needed and desired to do in the creation narratives was very good, and what God calls very good needs no encore. And then he says, all right, now I invite you into my room. I'm going to rest. You rest with me. It is to be an eternal rest from that point on. But we have no rest because we know that Adam and Eve were deceived into believing that they could have something good than God's good, something better than God's good. And there has been no rest ever since that time until Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am meek and humble at heart, and then you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he does what God did on the seventh day. He welcomes us back in to that rest. So that as Paul says, we can truly learn what it means to have peace that passes understanding. As our worship team comes forward to close this out today. Have you struggled with what it means to be good? Mm. Have you struggled with what it means to hear the words, God is good? Have you ever scoffed at that? Somebody says, oh, God is good. And you're like, yeah. You ever done that? I'll admit I have. Not as a slight against God, but a slight against the circumstances maybe that I'm going through. Have you ever said these words, if God is truly good, then why am I going through all this mess? Why do I have all these struggles in my life? you ever said, God, if you're truly good and you know what's going on in my life, why don't you do something about it? Sometimes God says, is my being with you through all of this not good enough? This valley of the shadow of death you're walking through, is the fact that I'm walking it with you not good enough? I want you to be stronger, but sometimes to be strong, there needs to be resistance. How many of you do resistance workouts? What happens when there is no resistance to your body? Your muscles 
lose mass, they begin to atrophy, and you become weak. And when you become weak, you are dependent on everybody else to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. God knows that resistance is necessary to strengthen the muscle of your faith. And ultimately, you need to understand that in spite of your circumstances, God is still good and can be trusted. As we close out today, there are many of you, this message may have hit broadside, catty-cornered, knocked you off your feet, or you might be like, meh. I hope in some way you've gotten a glimpse into the goodness of God who loves you and is truly calling you according to his good purpose for you. But if you try to go your own way and do your own thing, I promise you, you will be met with more than resistance. You will be met with this ugly master called sin who seeks to devour you. No, you can't be perfect in and of your own strength. There is nothing you can do to make yourself better. The best thing you can do is to lay it all down at the foot of the cross and say, I cannot do what only you can do for me, God, because you are good. You are only the one who is good. So be good in me and through me and let me reflect your image to everyone else around me. Would you stand with me as I close in prayer? The altars are always open. The steps are open on either side. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are holy and righteous. And all of that we desire to be but cannot be apart from you. Help us to learn what it truly means to surrender. That surrender is complete and whole. It's not partial. If it's only partial, it's not true surrender. Lord, let us open our hands and let go of those things that we hold so tightly to even the good things in life, knowing that in our releasing everything to you, we will gain so much more in return. Why do we hold on to our life when we know we'll ultimately lose it? God, let us give up our lives for your sake so that we can gain so much more. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.